This time on your weekly constitutional. That display was a pedestal, and on top of the pedestal was a human hand sort of reaching up to the sky, and there was a serpent coiled around the forearm of the hand, and the hand held an apple, maybe hearkening back to the biblical references to Adam and Eve, and inscribed on the pedestal was the phrase, knowledge is the greatest gift. That was Doug McKechnie, who teaches constitutional law at the United States Air Force Academy, describing a monument placed by the Satanic Temple on government property in Illinois. It's Weekly Constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and it's time for Satan Update 2019. Welcome to your Weekly Constitutional, underwritten by the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's historic home, Montpelier. Your host is Professor Stuart Harris, who teaches constitutional law at the Duncan School of Law of Lincoln Memorial University. We've talked about Beelzebub many times on this show because, after all, the First Amendment protects freedom of religion, and Satan and his minions come up from time to time. Turns out they've been quite busy lately. And to tell us all about it, here's our good buddy, the First Amendment guy, Doug McKechnie of the United States Air Force Academy. This year, this past um, winter holiday season, the state of Illinois found itself on the receiving end of some complaints from its citizens because in the Capitol Rotunda, there was uh, there were some holiday displays. There was a Christmas tree, a menorah and celebrating a Christian holiday and the Jewish holiday. But in addition to those displays uh, was a display from the Satanic Temple of Chicago. Mm. And what was that display? That display was um, – so your, your listeners will have to sort of imagine um, what this display looked like. It was a pedestal, and on top of the pedestal was a human hand mm. uh, with uh, sort of reaching up to the sky, and there was a serpent coiled around the forearm of the hand, and the hand held an apple maybe hearkening back to um, the biblical references to Adam and Eve, and inscribed on the pedestal was the uh, phrase, knowledge is the greatest gift. My, my, I was about to say that was a very biblical display, right up until you told me what the, the statement was. On, on the that, was very, that was straight out of Genesis, but then it takes a rather different tack, doesn't it? It does, and, and in addition to the words that were inscribed on the pedestal, there was a pentagram, which is often associated with uh, folks who are adherents to uh, Satanism. Um, but as, as you have um, had uh, representatives of the Satanic Temple on your show before, um, the Satanic Temple that had uh, proposed and paid for this display is actually not a – traditional religious organization. They consider themselves a non-theistic religious organization. Yeah, that's a very important point, Doug. I've spoken with Lucian Greaves, who is, I think, the head of the National Temple, um, and Lucian is uh, very clear that he does not consider um, the temple to be a religious organization, that their belief system uh, centers around uh, the, the Satanists described in uh, by Milton, um, which is much more a, a tale of uh, independence and uh, resistance to tyranny and uh, intellectual integrity um, in, in the face of, uh, of doctrine and oppression. Um, that is their perspective on this. They are not in any real sense Satan worshipers. That's right. And, and in fact, uh, when asked what the purpose of the display was, they're, they're pretty honest. They say, you know, we're not celebrating religion. In fact, what their goal is to draw attention to what they think is an encroachment of religion into government affairs. And of course, the display caused a stir. And when the state attorneys were asked to comment on the display, they said that there's just not that much that they can do about it because uh, the law, the First Amendment dictates for now, the First Amendment dictates that if you are going to open up the display um, of religious uh, iconography um, and religious um, holiday uh, scenes to some religions, you've got to be an equal opportunity um, display, uh, display sort of, you've got to give equal, equal opportunity to the displays. And so if you're going to have a nativity scene, if you're going to have a Christmas tree, if you're going to have a menorah, then you can't discriminate and choose and prefer certain religious displays over others. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty good summary of it. Uh, let's go back and unpack the law a little bit more. 
this area of the law is one of the most notoriously jumbled uh, areas. Uh, establishment clause um, doctrine is, is, is among the most difficult to understand and inconsistent among any areas of law, which is why both you and I are so fascinated by it. Um, and probably the, on the bar exam, they'll teach you that there's a case called uh, Lemon versus Kurtzman that sets out the relevant test uh, that has three parts that any uh, governmental involvement in religion has to pass. It has to uh, essentially have a secular purpose. Uh, it has to uh, neither favor nor disfavor religion or non-religion. And finally, uh, even if it passes those first two parts of the test, it has to pass a third part that says that you can't have too much entanglement between the government on the one hand and religion on the other. Uh, but in the breach, that test really is uh, is not being applied a lot these days. Uh, rather, that central tenet, uh, the one you referenced, the idea of neutrality between various religions or religion and non-religion, seems to be in the ascendancy, doesn't it? It is. It's, it's interesting because... The th there are three basic theories um, with regard to interpreting or trying to understand the Establishment Clause. There's the one theory that we often find or we often refer to Dom Thomas Jefferson's letter where he's criticizing the Commonwealth of Virginia and its attempt to reimpose or uh, reinstitute a tax to support a church. And he said in this letter that, that oftentimes is thought to come from the Constitution, but in fact it doesn't, that there should be – and this is Thomas Jefferson's words – a strict wall of separation between church and state. And that's sort of the most um, – on the one end of the spectrum, the most extreme approach towards understanding the Establishment Clause. Right, but then there are two other schools of thought. There are, um, and so in between, if you think about it on a continuum, that's the, the one end of the spectrum, and, and in the middle is this idea that uh, of neutrality and that government should really be neutral as to religion. It should neither encourage nor discourage religion. Uh, it should not take any actions that are motivated by religion or uh, motivated in um, or, or, or sort of do anything that is intended to inhibit religion. It shouldn't endorse religion. It should really try to be as, um, as, as again, neutral as possible uh, towards religion. Right. And then on the other end of the spectrum? And then on the other end of the spectrum is what is sometimes thought of as uh, the accommodationist theory, or um, in the negative, we might think about it as the coercion theory, which is to say that, look, government can recognize that religion plays an important part in society, it, it plays an important part in people's lives and, and in, in the nation's history, and that so long as the government is not coerce, coercing people to practice a religion or establishing an official church, then really the government is free to do whatever it wants with regard to religious displays or helping fund certain um, organizations that might have a religious bent to them. Right. And those three schools of thought represent the non-consensus on the Supreme Court because, at least as far as I can tell, the Supreme Court has never fully embraced any of those three approaches. I mean, there have been brief moments when you've had decisions that run the gamut. In fact, the decision I mentioned before, Lemon versus Kurtzman, is very much a strict separationist um, perspective. It, it's a very strict test, and it's a very difficult test for the government to meet, all three of those prongs I mentioned. Um, the neutrality test is really associated with former uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. And then the accommodationist school of thought for many years was associated with Marsh versus Chambers in 1983, which... Uh, gave a blessing, pun intended, to legislative prayer in the Nebraska state legislature, and even more recently by the town of Greece um, case. Could you talk a little bit about that one? Yeah, so I, I think actually what is the most, um, I, I think what's the, what is the most uh, important or more applicable case actually would be the Van Orden versus Perry and McCreary versus ACLU. So I don't know if you want to... Oh, absolutely. We could talk about those. Just before we get there, I was always struck by yeah. the fact that Marsh versus... If you no, that's all right. I'll be happy to. Marsh versus Chambers basically said that the Nebraska state legislature could go ahead and have prayers opening its session, which tended to be Protestant prayers because most people there were Protestants. And then the town of Greece case essentially reaffirmed that in the context of a local city council meeting where people were praying fairly openly to Jesus Christ at the beginning of that meeting. Um, and I was really kind of shocked when that one came out because I'd always thought of Marsh as being sort of an anomaly. Um, but as the court continued its sort of rightward shift in these uh, matters, um, they came out with the Town of Greece case. Um, but I think you're correct. Um, one very applicable 
more applicable case when it comes to religious displays involves the Ten Commandments. So why don't you tell us about uh, the Van Orden case? So in, in Van Orden versus Perry, it was actually – there were two cases that came to the Supreme Court at the same time. One was McCreary versus ACLU and one was Van Orden versus Perry, and they were literally decided the same – during the same session of the, of the sitting of the Supreme Court, but they came out on two different uh, – they came out two different ways, uh, and really a lot of it was based on the breakdown of the court. Uh, first, with the McCreary versus ACLU, it comes out of a, um, a county in Kentucky that had – uh, passed a resolution ordering the Ten Commandments to be placed um, uh, in front of the courthouse. Um, and what the um, what the resolution ordered was that the Ten Commandments be essentially framed, or I guess it was a sort of a picture of the Ten Commandments, be placed in a large gold frame. And in particular, the resolution suggested that the Ten Commandments, the version of the Ten Commandments, had to be the King James Version uh, and that it had to be readily visible to, to everyone that, that passed the, the Ten Commandments that was, that, was, that was displayed. Okay. So there was quickly a, a lawsuit. Uh, as the, the name of the case suggests, Mercury versus ACLU, the ACLU quickly files a lawsuit. And um, – so if you think about how a lawsuit works, we, we run into court, um, and whoever's suing the government seeks uh, what's called an injunction and says, you, you got to take these Ten Commandments down. But before the court could even hear the case with regard to the injunction, a new resolution is passed, and the county says, all right, well, we're going to not just have these Ten Commandments that we initially required to be displayed. We're also going to have um, – Eight other documents. They're going to be in smaller frames, and they each are going to be displayed around the Ten Commandments. But what's interesting is those documents. So, for example, there was the Declaration of Independence. There was, I think, the Kentucky Constitution. Each of those documents, the parts that were excerpt, uh, excerpted from the documents, and then sort of um, emphasized, were all um, they were all religious themes, and so the religious references in those documents, and so even the second um, sort of uh, display of uh, religious, uh, re or if the first, um, excuse me, the Ten Commandments, even the second display of the Ten Commandments, surrounded by these other documents, still had this thread that connected them that was that was religious in nature, uh, and ultimately, after even a third display, the Supreme Court said, look, it seems as though the intent behind the government's displays really was um, the religious advocacy, and this really was not a secular display. So Kentucky was trying to characterize itself as being religiously neutral by bringing in these other documents and sort of placing them around the Ten Commandments, uh, but ultimately failed because – essentially because of the case history. That's right. It it uh, the, the court said we can't be blind to what had happened and and how this case unfolded, and I think the court realized that there was some attempt to really to CYA to the the the, the county and probably the county's lawyers realized that they that they they did something that could easily perceive be perceived as violating the establishment clause, and so to try to uh, to fix that problem, they quickly tried to secularize perhaps the Ten Commandments by surrounding them with these other legal documents. But but nevertheless, even that second attempt, um, the emphasis on religion that was found in those documents, those other new documents, uh, led the court to find that the, uh, that the county had violated the First Amendment. Hi. The Satanic Temple is not a group of devil worshippers, but liberal political activists who oppose the increasing influence of the religious right in American politics. Based out of Salem, Massachusetts, and led by their co-founder, Lucian Greaves, today they're in Arkansas to protest... Lucian Greaves is the co-founder of the Satanic Temple, and he joins us tonight. I think the way the state has been trying to frame our battle is one of the Satanic Temple versus Arkansas, Satanists versus Christians. And what I'm trying to show is that that's not the case. Went through uh, hell for all sorts of different reasons, from riots to bankruptcy. So maybe that's why one group says the Motor City is the perfect place to unveil a symbol of safety. Good people of Arkansas, supporters of religious liberty, I present to you Baphomet. We want our children to get to heaven. We don't want them in hell for all these 
Satanic Temple, which calls itself a religious organization that opposes tyrannical authority and sees Satan as a symbol of free inquiry and personal autonomy. This is a call for an uprising. I've been documenting this after-school Satan program, which a lot of schools have been... After-school Satan clubs in, the in all the same districts where these good news clubs already exist. It's your weekly constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and this week we're talking about the evil one, the Dark Lord, Satan himself, because, of course, the Constitution protects freedom of religion. Our guest is Doug McKechnie, whom we spoke to via Skype from the United States Air Force Academy. Stick around. Listening to your weekly constitutional, I'm Stuart Harris, and we're here with Satan Update 2019. Why Satan? Well, because the Constitution protects all religions and protects them equally, even devil worship. Our guest is Doug McKechnie of the U.S. Air Force Academy, and before the break, he was telling us about two companion cases decided pretty much the same time involving Ten Commandments display. One of them was called McCreary County versus the ACLU of Kentucky. It was on the basis of the Mercury case that I found myself on our affiliate, um, our great friends at WVTF in Roanoke. Hello, WVTF and all you Roanoke people. And while I happened to be there one day, um, there was a, a local school board uh, that uh, was wrestling with, I think it was a Ten Commandments display. It might have been a In God We Trust display, but it was religious in nature, and um, their attorneys were trying to argue that it was religiously neutral, that it was more of a historical sort of display. And yet all of the case history, all of the legislative history leading up to it was very clear that uh, the people who were demanding that this uh, particular display be, I think it was, be put back up, it had been taken down, um, were doing it on religious basis. And so it, it's a very difficult position for uh, lawyers trying to defend one of these uh, displays to simultaneously satisfy their own constituents, um, but then try to convince a court that, no, nah, no, nah, it's not about religion after all. But all this goes back to the idea of neutrality, and it goes back yeah. to – yeah, please. No, I, I was just going to say I think it, I think you're right. I think it's about um, this, this concept of neutrality, and this, as you mentioned earlier, is really coming from that Allegheny County versus ACLU case where the court is suggesting that the government is free to celebrate – religion as part of the, the, the national experience, uh, so long as that it's not endorsing religion or preferring religion over non-religion. And so I think in the McCreary case, unlike the other case that was decided at the same time, this Van Orden versus Perry, in the McCreary case, the court understood or believed the, second, the, the Ten Commandments in that case were really no different than, um, than, a, than a, a clear display of the Ten Commandments in an attempt to um, to focus on it as a religious text versus its celebration of it um, within the context of the nation's history and culture. Right. Well, tell us about Van Orden. Why was that one different? So Van Orden, uh, again, comes up at the same time. They, both these cases are decided in 2005. Um, McCreary actually got a majority of the court to sign on to McCreary. So that was a majority binding decision. But Van Orden versus Perry uh, was not. Van Orden versus Perry was a plurality decision. It only got four justices to sign on to um, the controlling opinion. That was Rehnquist, Scalia, Kennedy, and Thomas. And in Van Orden versus Perry, that was the display of the Ten Commandments at the Texas State Capitol. Unlike McCreary versus ACLU, the Van Orden case, the Ten Commandments was – it was not a situation where the Ten Commandments were displayed and then there was an attempt to try to um, secularize it or to diminish its significance. Uh, in fact, it was displayed along with and, and almost at the same time as 17 other monuments and 21 other historical markers, and these are all um, monuments and markers that reference people and events um, and th basically things that deal with Texas identity. So Alamo, uh, people from the Alamo, uh, Confederate soldiers, cowboys, 
And within the context of these Texas monuments uh, was the Ten Commandments as a as a part of what Texas believed was um, sort of animated or was an influence on its uh, on its understanding of law. And these monuments had been around for a long time, hadn't they? They had. Yeah. They had, and it, and it was just part of a, a huge display in the Texas State Capitol grounds. And so looking at, the again, the, the whole history of the case and the situation, the context of it, the court, or at least the plurality of the court in that case, and I note that they were some of the more conservative members, uh, said, ah, it's not so bad. It's, it's, it looks neutral to us. Well, what's interesting is in Van Orden versus Perry, so going back to McCreary for a moment, the McCreary court sort of applied the lemon test that you had referenced earlier. They really looked at that um, that first prong of the lemon test, and they said, there's got to be, uh, and again, back to the Mercury case, there's got to be a, a secular government purpose for, for example, displaying the Ten Commandments. And and the court in the Mercury case just couldn't find it. They said, look, you're really just trying to display this for the purposes of, what, proselytizing perhaps, or really, really focusing on this as a religious document. Whereas in Van Orden versus Perry, they did not apply the Establishment Clause. The uh, the plurality the, the decision, lemon test. or I'm sorry, the lemon yeah, test. Yeah, right. In Van Orden versus Perry, they applied something different. They they applied um, more of a, a, a sort of a fluffy analysis or a, a less sort of structured analysis, where they looked at the the monument itself, so the Ten Commandments itself. Uh, the nature of the monument uh, and and where it's displayed, and then also they looked at the nation's history with regard to the Ten Commandments. Right, um, a little less rigid than what we see with regard to the Lemon Test. You know, and that's just a remarkable thing. Let's think about this. It's 2005, so not that long ago, um, and you've got two very factually similar cases. It may, may perhaps distinguishable, but very similar. So arguably, these are both establishment clause, and they both should be subject to the same rule. In fact, that's what you teach a law student. You say, what area of the law is this? Okay, what's the applicable rule? Okay, now go through each element of the test and apply the facts to the situation and then come out with your answer. And it's a fairly straightforward uh, and, and to some extent rigid analysis. That's what you're looking for in a, in a brief. That's what you're looking for in a law school exam, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, and yet you have the nine justices of the Supreme Court applying essentially two different tests in the same term to factually similar cases with no explanation as to why they used one in one case and didn't use it in the other. And that's the difficulty, I think, of the Establishment Clause. Yeah. It, it is, uh, you know, when we look at a test that tries to find some rigidity or some organization like the Lemon Test, you have uh, people like Justice Scalia criticizing it. Some scholars have criticized it as chaos theory, so to provide some structure, but really the outcome is somewhat uh, unpredictable. Uh, Justice Thomas has criticized it as as it being in hopeless disarray and in shambles. And so I think that this new case that the Supreme Court is considering uh, may ultimately be the opportunity for the court to announce either a new test or coalesce around um, coalesce around a, a, a test that will be the applicable test going forward. Ooh, now you've got me intrigued. Now, are we talking about the Illinois case again, or is there something else on the Supreme Court's docket involving the Establishment Clause? So we're talking about a case called Maryland National Capital Park and Planning Commission versus American Humanist Association. And this is a case that's coming out of the Fourth Circuit. And it's a case in which uh, there has been a challenge to the display of a Latin cross um, commemorating World War I soldiers. And this Latin cross is displayed on government property, and it's maintained by the government, and it's about 40 feet in, in height. So it's a, a pretty big um, – it's a pretty big cross, about four stories high. Zowie, that is and, a big cross. And the challengers suggest that this display of the Latin cross, um, obviously, if it was on private property, it wouldn't be an issue. Someone can put a cross up on their own property. But because it's on government property and maintained by the government, the argument is that this cross violates the Establishment Clause. That's such and an important point. Circuit. Before we go on, Doug, it's such an important point. Yeah. When I drive up and down I-81 uh, near Bristol, Virginia, there is a Latin cross, big white thing. I think it's made of aluminum siding or something, and it's much bigger than 40 feet. And it's on church property. It's private property. I mean, that's perfectly okay. Um, 
the issue is with the First Amendment when the government is in some sense endorsing or tending toward an establishment of religion, that's when the First Amendment arises. That's right. And and that and so I think this case at this time on this issue with these justices, I think we may have a settling um, of the establishment clause analysis going forward. Um, and I think it's because of the makeup of of the court. Uh, the, the Fourth Circuit um, has a very thorough analysis of this particular cross, and it applied the lemon test that you referenced earlier, and it said that the cross on public property being maintained by the government is unconstitutional, mainly because of um, under the second prong of the lemon test, the meaning of a Latin cross, it's a, it's a prominent symbol of Christianity. Um, and yes, sometimes on some government property, you'll find a Latin cross to, to memorialize, for example, a soldier that's memorializing that particular soldier and his or her religion, uh, whereas a 40-foot Latin cross to memorialize all soldiers, all fallen soldiers, is quite a different thing. At least that was the analysis of the Fourth Circuit. Uh, additionally, there's not, at least the Fourth Circuit found, not a lot of secular elements around this cross. There are some um, other secular plaques and memorials. I think the tallest one maybe was about 10 feet high. Um, but really, this is the main um, the main display with regard to this memorial area for fallen soldiers. And the court said, look, a reasonable observer would see this cross and say, you know, the government owns this land. The government's maintaining this cross. It's spent $170,000 to maintain it, and it's put aside $100,000 for restoration. Um, it's the prominent display here. Uh, this looks like, at least the court found, that um, the reasonable observer would think that this cross um, appears as though the government is endorsing Christianity above other faiths. Very interesting. Just a couple of factual questions. You mentioned World War One, so this cross has been around for a while. It's been around since 1925 is when the monument was completed. That's interesting. Generally speaking, it's been my sense, I, I couldn't give you chapter and verse, it's been my sense that the older one of these displays is, the more courts liable to say something like, well, tradition, history, no one's complained, it hasn't caused any problems, we'll let it go. But they didn't do that here in this particular... Well, they didn't. They didn't. Yeah, so the Fourth Circuit said, you know, in the Van Orden case, which we spoke about earlier, the, the Texas uh, Ten Commandments case... The, the Fourth Circuit said that although, yes, um, people had been passing this cross for over 90 years uh, without challenging it, there were a lot of other factors to take into account to determine whether or not there was a violation of the Establishment Clause. Uh, in addition to people passing this cross for 90 years and not complaining, there's also a lot of history with regard to a focus on Christian Christianity in the cross. And so, for example, there have, uh, there, when the cross was first erected, there were Christian prayers and, and Christian services when they dedicate, dedicated it. Um, and there were memorial services since the dedication that have been begun by Christian prayers. There were even Sunday services that were held there. So there is some other history that suggests that, um, that, that it has had a Christian focus. Well, you know, two things really strike me about this case. First of all is that the Fourth Circuit, um, which covers essentially much of the southeast, the sort of mid-Atlantic southeast, Virginia, you know, North Carolina, that, that region, is not a notably liberal circuit. <laughs> it's, it's generally speaking considered to be one of the more conservative circuits uh, in, in the United States uh, federal court system. Um, but then I'm even more struck by the fact that this relatively conservative circuit explicitly and um, in detail applied the Lemon Test this test that the court has not always itself embraced. And speaking about it briefly, the Lemon Test, I believe, was 1971, and it was one of the last gasps of what's commonly called the Warren Court. I think Earl Warren had actually retired as chief justice at that point, but the court was still largely uh, full of what would certainly today be considered very liberal justices, uh, and they did all sorts of things in the 50s and 60s that conservatives hated. And to my mind, Lemon has always been sort of the high watermark of the strict separationist school of thought in the Establishment Clause. And so I'm just struck by the fact that the Fourth Circuit so specifically embraced it uh, in, in order to decide this case. I am, too. I, I think that uh, I think that what the Fourth Circuit was stuck with was 
going back to our discussion earlier about McCreary um, and Van Orden, those two cases that were decided decided in 2005, McCreary garnered a majority of the mm-hmm, court yeah. and applied the lemon test. And Van Orden decided the same year was a plurality decision, did not apply the lemon test. And I think the Fourth Circuit doing what a an intermediate appellate court should do said, well, it looks like the – at least for now, it looks like the applicable test is – the lemon test, and we're going to go ahead and apply it. And they applied applied it and found that there was a violation of the Constitution with this cross. Now there was a dissent, um, but but certainly there, at least for the Fourth Circuit, there was enough facts there uh, to lead them to find that this display violated the Establishment Clause. Now was this a three judge panel, which is typical, or was this an en banc decision? We had all what, what two dozen judges up there deciding it. This was a three-judge panel. Okay. Well, it's still, I mean, it's just as valid, but sometimes you will have the entire court convene to, uh, to make a decision on an important case. Sometimes there's a motion to reconsider uh, a decision uh, on banc, as we like to say. And I just happen to have been in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals building uh, in Richmond on several occasions uh, to adjudicate uh, uh, we, the people, uh, constitutional competitions. And I've actually sat in that remarkable en banc courtroom with its remarkable Kelly Green carpet, and I will say that it's a very intimidating place. But this was not that. This was a three-judge panel, um, which is one level below the United States Supreme Court, and if I understood you correctly, two of the judges applied the lemon test and decided there was a violation. The third judge did not, and that's where we are. Um, And just again, to go over it again, the court said that there was no discernible secular purpose, so there was a failure of both the first prong and the second prong because the second prong requires neutrality? Well, the court said, the the Fourth Circuit said that in its opinion, the first prong, that secular prong, is pre, is a pretty low hurdle. And so long as the government can put forth some secular purpose for the government action, um, it's it's going to get over that hurdle. And so the court said, you know, with regard to the first prong and the, the need for a secular purpose, well, it's a memorial. Um, we want to the, – the government wants to um, preserve a war memorial that's been around for a long time. Um, it's got to maintain it because it's in fact on a, a pretty busy highway. And so the court actually um, moves over that prong pretty quickly, I think probably because the court knows that in its opinion the the, the cross is going to be lost or, or the display and the establishment clause violation is really going to turn on the second and the third prong. Right. Especially that second one, the neutrality issue. We haven't talked really much about the third, the entanglement issue. Did they address that? They did. They they found that um, – and if we look back at Lemon, the third prong often requires the court to consider whether or not there is a need for the government to uh, monitor or maintain, uh, for example, in the display context, monitor or maintain the display. And here the court said, yes, um, there is a need for the government to monitor and maintain this display. The government owns the cross. It maintains it. It it, it it will have paid uh, over the course of uh, 90 years. It will have paid over $200,000 to maintain and restore it. Um, and it, it, it just – the cross's size alone makes it appear, in the Fourth Circuit's opinion, makes it appear as if there is this uh, relationship uh, between government and religion that's inappropriate under the Establishment Clause. No! No! It has caused an uproar from the moment it was announced. A satanic statue slated to be unveiled in Detroit later this month. But that in turn drew the attention of a Satanist group which wanted to erect a satanic shrine in the park. Now the city is reversing itself and has decided to remove all religious symbols from the park instead. To stand as one unified voice against this demonic spirit that is trying to invade our city. We have seven tenants, actually, and actually they're irrelevant to our claim to be allowed in the free speech zone. Well, they're relevant to your claim to be a religion. Netflix's new Chilling Adventures of Sabrina has been sued by the actual satanic temple for copyright infringement. What did Jesus say? In the last days, there will be a war on the saints. Here's a clear example of the war on the saints. 
It is a one-ton, nine-foot bronze statue of the satanic symbol Baphomet. And as you might expect, it's been having a hard time finding a home. It was erected by a group called the Satanic Temple, who originally planned to place it next to a monument of the Ten Commandments at Oklahoma State Capitol. You're listening to your weekly constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and this week we're speaking via Skype to our good buddy, the First Amendment guy, Doug McKechnie from the U.S. Air Force Academy. And we started out talking about the devil, but now we're talking about crosses and Ten Commandments and all kinds of religious stuff. Stick around. Now it's time to finish our discussion with Doug McKechnie of the U.S. Air Force Academy. We're talking about the First Amendment and specifically the religion clauses and even more specifically the Establishment Clause, which prohibits, among other things, excessive entanglement between church on the one side and government on the other. Yeah, just think about it. I mean, on any given day, you might have some government maintenance worker out there scrubbing the side of the cross. Or, or uh, fixing you know little pit marks in the in the concrete, uh, or or whatever, shoring it up because the foundation is shifting. So you literally have taxpayer dollars and taxpayer workers uh, going out there to maintain the symbol of Christianity. So I guess that's, that's entanglement. Right. That that's right. I mean, the dissent in in the Fourth Circuit disagreed. The dissent said. The average person on the street, which is oftentimes um, a perspective that we think about when we think about Establishment Clause analysis, the dissent said that the average person on the street would look at the cross and say, this is a memorial to fallen soldiers, and a cross is a traditional memorial to fallen soldiers, and it's not an attempt to celebrate or advocate or proselytize Christianity. It's just really a memorial to all fallen soldiers. Uh, and, and and that I think people can have differing opinions on. Uh, certainly um, one might think of, and in fact there was an argument in the Supreme Court about this one time, one might think of uh, France and the, the the graveyards in France and, and might imagine uh, when one imagines those graveyards after World War II, one would think of perhaps crosses as far as the eye can see. But the reality is, is the, the, or the counter argument would be that those crosses are really in place to celebrate the particular soldier that they are, um, that, that they're there uh, to, to, to celebrate, right, that, that, that soldier's life. And if you go to um, many military, uh, many military graveyards, uh, there are various uh, representations of religion. And so you might find um, a Star of David, you might find the um, the moon and, and a star for Islam. And so um, so really there are really d- two different um, perspectives on that question. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, so you've got the Fourth Circuit specifically applying this lemon test from the liberal Warren Court era that has not even been always applied by the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, now this case is on appeal to the Supreme Court. Have they accepted? Have they granted cert? They will be having. They will hold argument in late February, February of 2019. My goodness! And your thought is that if they accept this case, then this may be an opportunity for them to say, "Okay, definitively, this is or is not the test for the establishment clause, and here's how we're going to apply it." I think the court is going to take this opportunity to, at the very least, create or establish the test for religious the display of religious symbols on government property and the reason i think that and and i i think the test is going to be a pretty permissive test i think it's going to be something in line with van orden versus perry i think it's going to be um a a very permissive and a low burden for the government to meet and 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 the reason i think that is because if you look at the makeup of the court right now uh starting with the chief justice um justice thomas uh justice alito those three justices alone are almost certain to vote for a more permissive um, analysis or a more permissive test that will allow the government to display religious iconography and, and religious symbols. In addition, we've got justice, the new justices, Neil 
uh, Gorsuch. Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, those two new justices, they were uh, law clerks for Justice Kennedy. Uh, and Justice Kennedy often found um, that religious displays were only inappropriate when they were coercive in nature. So I really think that we've got a lot of justices on the court right now that are that tend to um, tend to be on the one end of the spectrum with regard to the establishment clause and really are going to be permissive with regard to the display of of religious symbols except when those religious symbols are intended to be coercive. Yeah, you've just identified uh, five justices that I think are really more of the accommodationist school of thought, uh, the opposite end of the spectrum from the uh, Jeffersonian strict separation uh, end of it. And since Lemon is more Jeffersonian in its perspective, I wonder if they're actually simply going to go in and reverse Lemon and simply abandon it altogether, not just for religious displays, but maybe even go beyond that. Well, that that's... That is a possibility, and I think that um, if we're thinking about, again, constitutional law and constitutional understanding of many of the uh, the amendments, uh, and we think about it on a spectrum, and if you think about it from a liberal conservative perspective, certainly um, that has been – I think Lemon has been criticized a lot by the conservative side of the aisle with regard to the Supreme Court, and this might be the opportunity – uh, that um, conservative justices have been waiting for to not only scrap lemon in the context of religious displays, but just get rid of lemon once and for all, because lemon has inhibited or prohibited the government um, from from engaging in other kinds of aid to religion. And so, whether it's um, you know sending um, aid money aid to religious schools or um, any other sorts of involvement in religious uh, uh, in religious schools w- uh, with regard to funding um, there are a lot of ways that lemon has stopped the the government's ability to be more intertwined with religion and I, I think that might be the opportunity this might be the opportunity the court has been looking for or at least that uh, that end of the spectrum has been looking for for a while. Yeah, but even though I raise this issue, I I suspect maybe not because I know that especially Justice Chief Justice Roberts and I'm sure other justices are reluctant to announce sweeping changes in the law. So they might do more what you're thinking they're going to do, which is simply to uh, announce a different test with regard to religious displays generally. Um, because the the circumstances are different depending on where you are. Now, now I'm going to segue to another area that, that you just referenced, I believe, and that is schools. And in a school situation, the court has always been a little bit more restrictive in terms of what, what it will allow the government to do. Because unlike a, a courthouse steps, um, which mostly encounters adults walking by um, who can either choose to be there or not be there on any given day, a school setting um, is to a great extent, coercive. I mean, it's uh, you're, you're required to send your kids to school somewhere, and for most of us, that means public school. And uh, they are then a small, uh, I should say young, uh, impressionable uh, group of, of children uh, who are in um, uh, their captive audience. And so courts have been much more reluctant to allow proselytization and perhaps the display of iconography in a school setting. And so they might have a different rule for that. They might actually keep lemon for that. I think that that could be that could be true. What's um, what's interesting? I think there's two things to think about. One thing is that Chief Justice Roberts, I think, is concerned about the legitimacy or the perceived legitimacy of the court, mm-hmm. and to the extent that he would be in favor of sweeping decisions versus narrow decisions, I think he would be. While he might vote with the conservative wing of the court to accomplish conservative goals, um, I think his attempt would. De- would be to try to keep those decisions narrow, as narrow as possible. Um, So that's one thing to consider. At the same time, even if there is a move by the court to scrap or significantly hinder the lemon analysis and move more towards an entrenched coercion analysis or accommodationist analysis, um, even in that circumstance, if we look back at some of the cases that were decided before, for example, Lee versus Weissman, and Mm -hmm. we think about some of the justices that were – on the coercion end of the spectrum or the accommodationist uh, end of the expe- uh, spectrum. Justice Kennedy was one of those justices. And in Lee versus Weissman, Justice Kennedy thought that clergy-led school prayer was coercive. Uh, so I do think you're right that 
even if there is an announcement by the court that we're going to move away from Lemon, we're going to really focus on whether or not something is coercive in the school context, especially when it comes to uh, you know, the display of the Ten Commandments or the display of other religious iconography or forced prayer. I think there are still a lot of justices on the Supreme Court that would suggest that that is, that, that is coercive. Yeah, I agree with you. It's just easier to find coercive in that environment. And that reminds me of something, of a, another strain of, of uh, Establishment Clause analysis involves our second, not our first, but our second national motto. Uh, we had one for many years, still do, e pluribus unum, out of many, one, uh, completely secular and describes our, our federal union. And then in uh, the 1950s, we adopted, um, during the McCarthy era, the second um, of our national mottos, in God we trust. Now, that's been a subject of great gnashing of teeth and rending of garments by people on the left for many years, uh, because to them, it's very clearly religious in nature and clearly violates the Establishment Clause, whereas other people, including the courts, have said, no, 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 this is not really that religious. It's been drained of most of its religious meaning. It's uh, something simply that's a, a solemn recognition of our history and traditions in this country. Um, despite the fact, of course, that it was adopted specifically to differentiate us from those godless communists back in the 1950s. Now, the national motto has been challenged many times, and it's been upheld repeatedly. Um, but very interestingly, a number of state governments, uh, whether local sheriff's offices or even entire state uh, education departments, have been taking that national motto and sort of putting it in people's faces a lot more aggressively lately. And I know this because in, in my uh, home state of Tennessee here, uh, we had a recent law passed by the Tennessee legislature signed by the governor that requires the display of In God We Trust in public schools in prominent positions where it will be seen by students on a daily basis. And one of my uh, law students recently, I won't mention her name because I haven't asked her permission, um, but uh, one of my law students wrote a seminar paper for me uh, called, uh, I believe it was called, Even Atheists Can Be Patriotic, where she said that this was just wrong because uh, it was coercive. You have this national motto, and it, you know, maybe on one hand it's okay to have a national motto, but when you take it and you put it in schools and you sort of stick it in students' faces as aggressively as the state legislature of Tennessee is requiring, that that would actually result in an Establishment Clause violation. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, what's interesting, I think, is thinking about religion, religious displays, religious mottos, and thinking about them in the context of displaying them in secular settings. And so I think that that – Oftentimes people will argue, for example, the Ten Commandments. People will often argue that, you know, the reality is that the Ten Commandments are sort of everywhere. They're in the Supreme Court. Uh, they're part of a, a painting in the Supreme Court. They're, they're found in a lot of places, so much so, and they're so common in dis displays on public property that they've really become secular. Um, and indeed, that's part of the argument with regard to the, the cross in the, in the Fourth Circuit case, this idea that it really is a secular um, – celebration of a memorial of, um, of folks who have died in the war. Um, what's interesting is the justices that are um, on, the, on the coercion end of the spectrum, so, so thinking about the, the more accommodationist justices, they don't, don't buy that argument. And so, for example, uh, one time in an oral argument, it was actually the, uh, the Van Orden versus Perry oral argument. The government was arguing, and, and, the, and the McCreary oral arguments, these cases were uh, going on at the same time. Ten Commandments. Um, the, government right. is ar the government's arguing that, look, the Ten Commandments are really secular, right? And so and we're not re there's not really a religious angle to the display of the Ten Commandments. And, and, that, and that, is, that is an attempt to try to strip them of their religious meaning such that you can then more easily display them and not violate the Establishment Clause. But Justice Scalia, when the government made that argument, an oral argument, said that's ridiculous. Um, there, there is no connection between, for example, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the Ten Commandments. They, there is no connection there. And Justice Scalia said in oral argument, the Ten Commandments is a symbol of God, and the and and when the government displays it, the government is saying that it derives its authority from God, um, and that it is a celebration of religious belief and the national life uh, being influenced by that. And so, even the justices, um, even the justices don't sometimes buy that argument that um, 
you know, the references to God and the Ten Commandments are necessarily secular in nature. Yeah, that's very interesting because, of course, again, the lawyers who are saying that are trying to satisfy the neutrality requirement of Lemon on the one hand, and at the same time, of course, represent constituencies that are very upfront about the religious aspects of the Ten Commandments or the national motto. Uh, Scalia really represents, I think, in that regard, the real extreme on the right end of the spectrum, because he's saying, of course it's religious, and of course it's okay. I I think that's what's interesting. I think that Scalia uh, would have argued and did, in in a sense, argue, you don't need, you, the government, you don't need to come into court and try to prove that this is actually a secular display. You can come in and say it's a religious display, and in Scalia's opinion, and, and I, I think that there are more justices on the court now than there were at the time that would agree with Scalia, I think that in Scalia's opinion, he would say, that's okay if it's religious. It's okay if you're celebrating the religious nature of the Ten Commandments um, because – Because so history and tradition. Not, it's history and tradition, and so long as you're not requiring people to uh, – well, excuse the pun, genuflect in front of the, the Ten Commandments and, and – um, and, and say prayers, and and you're not requiring them to go to a particular church, then you then you the government can um, celebrate that aspect of um, of of society. I don't know if your children listened to Weird Al Yankovic the way my boys did ten years or so ago, but uh, they were always playing Weird Al Yankovic songs, and one of them was <laughs> a very strange. A lot of his songs are strange. Um, called Weasel Stomping Day where he posited this strange ritual that uh, that people went out and did. They would go out and stomp on weasels, and, and the, the song was filled with sound effects of weasels being stomped on and squealing in agony as they were being stomped on. And, uh, of course, this is sort of black humor, and they're making fun of cruelty. And there was this one line that just stuck in my mind. It still sticks to this day. Uh, Yankovic sings, uh, It's tradition that makes it okay. And well, that's and, and, kind of what that whole argument is. Is I mean, we've been doing it, so it's okay to keep doing it. Well, and what's interesting, if you think about it, let, let's imagine that going forward, the Supreme Court announces a, a, a test for the Establishment Clause, even if it's just within the display context. And the court says, okay, we're going to consider two things with regard to a challenge to a, a display of religious iconography or a religious display. We're going to consider, number one, the nature of the monument, and number two, the nation's history with regard to religious displays. Well, the court, once it makes, once it does an analysis and says that religious displays are part of our nation's history or a particular religious display is part of our history, it will never have to do that analysis again. Once it makes the decision that, for example, the Ten Commandments are part of our, our, our history as a nation, that, that part of the analysis goes away for the future. And so really the only issue is going to be the nature of the monument. Yep. Really interesting stuff, Doug, but we're winding down here. We're running out of time. So any final thoughts before we finish our Satan update of of 2019? Final thoughts. Uh, This case that's coming to the Supreme Court from the Fourth Circuit is going to be overturned. The Fourth Circuit's decision um, will be overturned because there is a critical mass of Supreme Court justices that – um, that are not going to agree that the display of this Latin cross, this 40-foot Latin cross, violates the Establishment Clause. Doug, this is public radio, and you know we skew left on this one. You're making a lot of people unhappy when you say that. Well, Stuart, I'm trying to be an objective observer and, and give you my, my honest opinion. <laughs> Doug McKechnie of the United States Air Force Academy, thanks so very much for sharing your insights about the First Amendment with us. Thanks for having me, Stuart. And that's our show. Thanks so very much to our good buddy, Doug McCackney, the First Amendment guy who teaches constitutional law at the U.S. Air Force Academy. Yes, yes, they actually do teach that there. Who knew? Our executive producer is Wayne Winkler. Our scheduler is Carol Hutchinson. Our distribution engineer is Chad Barrett. Our music is by Hannibal's Elephants. Check them out on SoundCloud. My name is Stuart Harris, and remember, you are a part of the American Experiment.